Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're looking this evening at the 11th verse of the book of Jude. Jude and verse 11, next to the last book, of course, in the New Testament, the book of Jude. Appreciate the ushers and their ministry faithfully getting things into your hands. Jude, the 11th verse, a verse that begins with a, a word that we hear the Lord Jesus Christ sharing often in the Gospels. Woe, woe unto them, for they've gone in the way of Cain, Jude verse 11, and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam, for reward they perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Jude, and the 11th verse this evening, we're going to trace together the, tra- the trajectory of apostasy as identified in the 11th verse of the epistle of Jude. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word tonight. Father, I pray that You'd use Your Word this evening to make a difference in our hearts and lives, that we'd be found faithful, that we would be discerning. And Lord, that this evening as we go out from this place into the world in which You want us to be safe, that we go out carefully, that we go out perceptively, that we would see before the error is embraced. Thank you this evening, Lord, for the encouragement of this service, for the song that thrills our hearts to realize that indeed all is well, to know that the Lord Jesus Christ came into David's city, was born in humble means and places, and guides us yet today. Thank you for the accomplishment of the young people who gave their hearts to learn your word this fall. We praise you for that, Lord. But now especially we pray that you'd allow your word, even in challenging passages, to encourage our hearts, to stabilize us uh, for service for you, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. When the pilgrims came to settle in this good land, they came as religious separatists. The pilgrims had left England, traveled to Holland, found themselves in Holland, surrounded by a culture that they thought unfit in which to bring up their children. And so with great sacrifice, they boarded the Mayflower and came here to separate themselves religiously in the world, but not of the world. Following the pilgrims came the Puritans. The Puritans were not quite so much the separatists as the pilgrims. The Puritans, as their name indicates, wanted to see a purification of the church, their home church, the state church, if you will, the Anglican church in England. But they had true hearts desiring to please the Lord. Both of them, the pilgrims and the Puritans, solidly inscripturated, desiring to live for the Lord in this good land. So it was that the first settlers settled that Massachusetts Bay colony and settled it to be an intensely religious experiment, if you will. During the 1600s, that religious experiment continued forward with some measure of success. But by the 1700s, their intensity of religion had diminished greatly. By 1741, the King's Chapel Meeting House in Boston, Massachusetts, was a Unitarian church. Unitarians don't believe in hell, the virgin birth, or the resurrection. You say, well, what on earth do they believe? Well, they believe in 
a sort of humanism. And so it was that the King's Chapel Meeting House was a Unitarian church in the heart of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Secular rationalism had increased during the 1730s and the 1740s, so much so that there were those who were living in the colonies who were known as New Light Christians. There had been a book that was written by a man by the name of Chauncey who advocated this New Light type of Christianity, Unitarianism, where people put aside the belief in the miraculous, and some even put aside the belief in the eternality of the soul. Then Jonathan Edwards stood up, and he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. And with Jonathan Edwards and Theodore Frelinghuysen and George Whitfield and Jonathan Wesley and Charles Wesley, God did a great work in America as well as England. There was a great awakening. By the latter part of the 1700s, that great awakening had ebbed. And the Lord sent what many historians call the second great awakening. By the middle of the 1800s, the second great awakening had diminished. And the Lord sent the prayer revival or the layman's revival. When a man simply bowed his head before the Lord and prayed, and God began to bring in people, not only in New England, but Philadelphia and as far west as Chicago. And it was said that thousands every week were coming to Christ as Savior here in America. D.L. Moody picked up the torch of that layman's revival after the Civil War and carried it forward until the Lord would call him home in 1899. And God used D.L. Moody to preach to over a million souls who came to Christ as Savior under his ministry. Why do I tell you all that? Because it's important for us to be encouraged and realize that spiritual work ebbs and flows. We serve the same God who could bring a great awakening, a great revival in America in the 1700s and the 1800s, and I believe He can bring it today. We're living in a time that's desperately in need of revival. We shouldn't be surprised by that. After all, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13 says, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, 1971. A survey was taken in America. Over 90% of the Americans surveyed at that time thought that religion was a very important part of their normal life. By 2021, 50 years later, only 69% of the Americans thought religion to be an important part of their normal life. In 2021, over 75% of the people in America who were surveyed identified with some form of religious organization. 50 years later, fewer than half identify with some sort of religious organization. As we open our Bibles to the book of Jude, we read an epistle that is dedicated to exposing apostasy. It's given to us by the power of the Spirit of God to help us identify the movements that come and go through the ages, movements of apostasy or that turning away from God. You see, an apostate is one who receives the word and believes the word for a time, then falls away. Apostates have light for a moment. They have light for a moment, but they do not have life that is eternal. True believers, thank God, cannot become apostates. Why not? 
Well, in Jude verse 1, we read that the God that we serve has the capacity to preserve us in Jesus Christ, those who have been called. And in Jude verse 24, we discover that the God that we serve has the power to keep us even unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Back in 2009, Ken Ham, the founder of the Creation Museum and Answers in Genesis, published a book that caused a lot of stir. It garnered the attention of a lot of people. The name of his book, Already Gone. And in that book, having conducted numerous surveys, the statement was made, two-thirds of the young people growing up in evangelical churches in America have already gone. They're not plugged in. They're not going to continue forward. They're going to graduate and go out and be in the world and not be part of the church. I thought the study of that book interesting, but I thought the study of that book missed something important. What was missed in that book was not simply the question, are they in evangelical churches? But what was missed was this question. Have they made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior? Are they truly born again? If they're not born again, we should not be surprised that they go out from us. For the Word of God says they went out from us, for they were not of us. If they'd been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they've gone out, John says, that it might be manifest that they were not of us. The 11th verse of the book of Jude is a book that speaks of the accelerating movements of those who turn toward apostasy. You'll see three verbs woven through verse 11 and see the acceleration of the movement as expressed in these words. Jude says, they've gone in the way of Cain. Then they've run or ran greedily after the error of Balaam. And finally, they've perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Apostasy, you see, is not a static force. Apostasy is a spiritually disastrous force that brings about eternal ruin. Jude is weaving together Old Testament analogies in this book that we've been considering so that New Testament believers will know how to earnestly contend for the faith. He's tying together these triads. And so we see that beginning in verse 5. He reminds his readers, how that Israel rejected the promises of God and pulled back. While God had brought them out of Egypt, they pulled back and would not enter into the promised land, and so they perished in their wilderness wanderings. Then in verse 6, he tells us about the angels that did not keep their first estate. They weren't content with the ranks and responsibilities that God had given to them, and so they today are in everlasting chains They are in a jail of great darkness. Then in verse 7, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities who gave themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, and God sent upon them a terrible fire. The second triad begins in verse 8, having exposed the nation of Israel and the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. He weaves again in verse 8, saying, "'Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh.'" They despise dominion. They speak evil of dignities. They revel, he says, in their debauchery. They are defiling the flesh. They're reveling, they're rebelling rather, against responsibilities. They are despising dominion. They are rejecting authority. They're speaking evil 
of dignities. The discerning Christian is asked by the Spirit of God in this passage to trace the trajectory of apostasy, to see how it moves. It's not a static force. It's a force that's inspired by Satan, and it draws people down even to the very pit. This evening, we look at verse 11. A third of these triads is being woven together. As these Old Testament analogies are brought now into the New Testament, because all these things happen to them for our example, upon whom the end of the age has come. And we look in verse 11 and we see the lives of Cain and of Balaam and of Korah so that we can understand the crescendo, if you will, of apostasy. Notice that Jude points out that Cain rejected God's worship. Woe unto them, for they've gone the way of Cain. Friend, the path of apostasy begins where true worship is polluted. The story of Cain's disobedience is found in the book of Genesis in the fourth chapter. I trust you remember the story of Cain's disobedience. The Word of God tells us in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3 that Cain, being a farmer, he brought the fruit of the ground and set it upon the altar to offer the fruit of the ground, the fruit of his hands, unto the Lord. But his brother Abel, a keeper of sheep, he sacrificed a lamb and brought it unto the Lord. And you recall how that God was pleased with the offering that Abel had brought and how that God rejected the offering that Cain had brought. And Cain's disobedience is recorded for us three times in the New Testament because there's a huge and valuable lesson that the Spirit of God wants us to learn in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And that lesson is this. When you worship the right God the wrong way, there can be tragic consequences. And so we learn in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 that by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was more righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And in 1 John chapter 3, the Spirit of God says in verse 11, this is the message which you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another, not as Cain, who was that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Merrill Unger suggests that Cain's false worship represents the fountainhead of all spurious religion, the essence of which is man's approach to God in his own way rather than the prescribed way that God gives. How important is it the way we worship? Well, here's how important it is. Cain worshiped the wrong way and he went out from his worship service and committed murder. As I meditate on the theme of worship, I have a confession to make. Having grown up in fundamental Baptist circles, in my early years, I heard very few messages on the topic of worship. It almost seemed to me as a student of God's Word in my earlier years that worship was a major theme in the Old Testament, not so much in the New Testament. And the reality is, it's true, when you study the Bible, you'll see all kinds of prescribed indicators of right worship in the Old Testament, including warnings with regard to wrong worship, and, and not so much in the New Testament. So I think it is that many New Testament Christians come to the topic of worship 
rather naively. But we ought to come very carefully. After all, the book of Jude says, when Cain worshipped in the wrong way, he led a parade. Woe to them who have gone the way of Cain. There is a pathway that was etched out by Cain's wrong worship. And so we come to understand by the example of Cain that God-centered worship is focused on redemption. God-centered worship is focused on redemption. It's not what I can bring. It's what God has done. It's not what I have done. It's what Christ has done for me. Abel brought a sacrifice from his flock. Cain brought a sacrifice from the field. Abel's sacrifice was a sacrifice of blood. It was a sacrifice of blood. Cain's sacrifice was not. And access to God is only possible when there's a substitutionary sacrifice of the blood. That's why Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21 says, God covered Adam and Eve on the day of their disobedience, when they had covered themselves with leaves of their own weaving. God in His grace showed up and He covered them with the skins of the animals that died because of their disobedience. And Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11 we read, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And it's the blood, Leviticus 17 and verse 11, that makes atonement for the soul. Isaiah 53 explains in verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Christ, you see, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, died for our sins. There's redemption through His blood. Hebrews chapter 9 says in verse 22, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. 1 Peter chapter 1 says in verse 18, for as much as you know that you're not redeemed with silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the blood, the blood is of a lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, who in his own self bear in his body our sins upon the tree this evening. We're going to be gathering in a moment before the Lord's table. Engraved on the front of the Lord's table, the words, do this in remembrance or this do in remembrance of me. And what are we remembering? We're remembering the broken body of the one and only heavenly sacrifice that was sent, Jesus Christ. We're remembering the shed blood of Jesus Christ and our dependency upon that for the forgiveness of our sins. You can't make your way to heaven by keeping the gold rule. You can't allow the thought that your good works will somehow outweigh your bad works. If you compare yourselves among yourself, you're not wise. True religion is foundationed on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It's foundationed in the blood. Oh, but there's so many who've gone the way of Cain. What's the way of Cain? Well, man-centered worship is focused on relevance. It's focused on relevance. Apostates take the way of Cain. Cain's offering was relevant, wasn't it, to his occupation? <laughs> he was a farmer, so he offered from his fields. It was relevant to him. It made sense to him. He didn't care to appreciate Cain's offering. He didn't care to appreciate God's way. And so it is today. So it is today. There are those who have left the ministries of edification, 
where the redemptive work of Jesus Christ is explained and the blood is looked to as the only pathway through which our sins can be forgiven. They've turned after the way of Cain. They found a religion of entertainment where their felt needs are satisfied, but the scriptural word is not being taught. They speak of knowing a way, but in practice they have turned from the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Cain wanted worship to be something that he found relevant and respectable. He didn't want this brutal religion. He didn't want to look into the eyes of a lamb that was being slain. No, he wanted something that was relevant and respected. Instead, he found a religion that was rejected of God. Listen, God is under no obligation to receive the kind of worship that we specifically desire to weave together and give to Him. In Isaiah chapter 1, He speaks of the worship of the Israelites, and He says to them in Isaiah 1 and verse 13, Bring no more your vain oblations. Incense, it's an abomination unto me. Your new moons and your Sabbaths, the calling together of your assemblies, I cannot away with it. It's iniquity. Even your solemn meeting. Yes, they were still coming together. They were still calling themselves the people of God. They were still worshiping Jehovah, but their worship was polluted, and God said, I don't want it. God said to Amos in Amos chapter 5 and verse 23, take away from me the noise of thy strings. He had no pleasure in the music of their assemblies. There is worship that can be so polluted as to offend a holy God. And if you're thinking, well, that's the Old Testament. That's exactly right, and that's why Jude talks about it here in the book of Jude. He uses it as an example for us to consider. And by the way, in the New Testament, as the church begins to gather together for worship, Ananias and Sapphira did not worship rightly. And God took the matter of polluted worship very seriously. God cares about the way we worship. And the road to apostasy begins when we reject right worship. We look further in this passage and we see the trajectory as the Spirit of God reveals it. He speaks not only of the way of Cain, he speaks of those who ran greedily after the error of Balaam. The story of Balaam is taught in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 22 through Numbers chapter 25. It's reiterated just like the story of Cain three times in the New Testament. Because there are lessons from the life of Balaam that New Testament believers need to understand. In short, Balak, the king of Moab, came to Balaam, who was a prophet for hire. And Balak said to Balaam, I want you please to curse the children of Israel, for I fear them that they might destroy my nation. Balaam very wisely listened to God as God communicated to Balaam, and God said, don't do it. You don't curse the children of Israel, they're my people. And While Balaam heard the story, he willingly went back to Balak, the king of Moab, and he said, even repeatedly, I can't curse them. He prayed God's blessings upon them, even in front of the king who wanted them destroyed. But this passage tells us something of the weakness of Balaam. This passage in verse 11 says he ran greedily for financial reward and he 
perished. Balaam clearly rejected God's word. Numbers chapter 31 and verse 8 says, he was so desirous of financial gain that the king was offering him that he plugged his ears to the will of God. And when he plugged his ears to the will of God, he came to King Balak and he said to Balak, I can't curse the nation of Israel. But let me give you a few thoughts. Why don't you try to encourage the young men from Israel to be attracted to the young women of Moab? Why don't you think about some intermarriage? And while you're doing that, maybe you can introduce the young people in Israel to the idols that you and Moab find dear. When you study the story of Balaam, you discover that Balaam was an ingenious prophet. He was an ingenious prophet. Technically, he never cursed Israel. He never did what the king asked him to do. But he straddled the fence. He counseled the Moabites about how they could seduce the sons of Israel and how they could practice idolatry and immorality. Turn over in your Bibles just a couple of pages to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. As the Lord Jesus speaks to the church at Pergamos, and the 14th verse of Revelation chapter 2, he says, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. What is that doctrine of Balaam? Well, Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Balaam's doctrine was a self-centered, sensual doctrine. Balaam's doctrine that he gave to Balak that would corrupt the people of Israel was have it your way. Do your own thing. If it feels good, do it. And I would submit to you that there are many brothers of Balaam who are in ministry round about us today. They practice the health and the wealth doctrine. They practice doctrines of prosperity. Some of them even fly around in multi-million dollar jets, wear fancy suits, encourage others to give so they can live in their mansions. Balaam was such a person. He ran greedily. He ran greedily after what he could get through the ministry that he corrupted and he was an influential prophet. Balaam was an influential prophet and apostate. You see, Cain's apostasy impacted his family. But Balaam's apostasy, Balaam's apostasy cost the lives of 24,000 Israelites who died when God sent a plague upon them for their sin of idolatry and immorality. In Numbers chapter 24 and verse 9, Balaam actually says, Blessed is he that blesseth thee and curses is he that curseth thee, speaking to the children of Israel. But by the time you get to Numbers chapter 31 and verse 6, he caused the children of Israel to commit trespasses against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation. Ultimately, 24,000 people in Israel would die because of the counsel of this one man, because of the corrupt counsel of one apostate. 24,000 would die. And ultimately, Numbers chapter 31 says in verse 6 that Moses sent 1,000 from every tribe in Israel, 12,000 men in their armor and with their weapons. And the Bible says they warred against the Midianites and slew all the males, and they slew the king of Midian. I've been calling them the Moabites, the Midianites. Balaam also they slew with the sword. You see, apostasy always has consequences. 
Cain rejected the worship of the Lord. Balaam, he rejected the word of God, and he hurt two nations. But Jude verse 11 tells us about one more apostate. The 11th verse, we read about Korah. Korah was an apostate who rejected God's will. Korah perished in gainsaying. Who's Korah? Well, Korah was a Levite. That's the priestly tribe. Korah then was a cousin of Moses. Korah was a high-ranking Levite. He had a high position and a good name. He was a prince. And Korah, like the angels that are spoken of in verse 6, the angels that could not keep their first estate, even so, Korah was not contented with the place, the position that God had given to him. Korah wanted to be equal with Moses. Korah wanted a, a better piece, a more significant piece of influence in the nation of Israel. And so it was that he conspired. He conspired with Dathan and Abiram and on, and 250 princes of Israel. And we learn in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 3 that Korah, Korah's attack on Moses seemed logical. In Numbers chapter 16 and verse 3, this is what we read. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they said to them, you take upon yourself too much, seeing all the congregation are holy. Every one of them is holy. Wherefore then lift up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And God had called all the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6, a holy people. But Korah wanted spiritual parity. Moses, why is it all we ever hear about is Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron? Why can't there be some other names added to the list of significant leaders in Israel? After all, we're all a holy people. He wanted some measure of spiritual parity. It seemed logical. But the attack was actually an attack on the leadership of Moses. You see, God's Word recognizes equality of our souls, neither Jew nor Gentile, Galatians 3, verse 28, male nor female, bond nor free. Yes, there's an equality of souls, but God's Word establishes lines of authority. The angels rejected that in verse 6. Korah rejected that in verse 11. And Korah's rejection is happening even today, and it's happening in churches. You say, really? How do we see the mistake of Korah. Well, here's one way. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must then be faithful, the husband of one wife. Do you know that today in America, 79% of Americans are comfortable with women preachers? According to a significant study, 13% of the churches in America are today pastored by women. That would have been unthinkable 100 years ago. But they've gone after the way of Korah. Korah's rebellion happens every day. It happens in homes. I don't want to submit to him. I don't want to obey them. It happens in workplaces. Why should he be the boss? It happens in nations. Why should we submit to those laws? After all, the people who are in charge seem to be pretty corrupt. It happens among genders. I don't believe myself to be content, someone says, with the gender that people have said I was from the time of my birth. Why should they have the right to tell me where I belong? 
Korah's era, error. And Korah was one who was punished. Why? Because it says of his gainsaying. The word gainsaying there is antilogia. Speaking against. He was a rebel. He fostered a spirit of rebellion. And because of the spirit of rebellion that he fostered, even with his logical arguments, 250 princes of Israel would die. Every New Testament believer needs to recognize the trajectory of apostasy. Here, then, is the trajectory of apostasy that the Spirit of God has given. It begins with wrong worship. Wrong worship that rejects God's Word and ultimately turns rebellious against God's will. May God help us in a day and age in which, as we discovered this morning, our high priest is praying that we will be in the world but not of the world. May God help us to be on the lookout and be careful. May God help us as a church family to be careful, to realize that the little things and the little insignificant decisions can lead to great errors and even great apostasy. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.